My name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, The Story Podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 27. We're reading the NIV version of the Bible, Genesis 49 and 50, Job 41 and 42, and Psalms 17. Genesis 49. Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel, for you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed by their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel, I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down, like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his." He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun will live by the seashore and become a haven for ships. His border will extend toward Sidon. Issachar is a raw-boned donkey lying down among the sheep pens. When he sees how good is his resting place and how pleasant is his land, he will bend his shoulder to the burden and submit to forced labor. Dan will provide justice for his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a snake by the roadside, a viper along the path that bites the horse's heel so that its riders tumbles backward. I look for your deliverance, Lord. Gad will be attacked by a band of raiders, but he will attack them at their heels. Asher's food will be rich, He will provide delicacies fit for a king. Naphtali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. With bitterness, archers attack him. They shot at him with hostility, but his bow remained steady. His strong arms stayed limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel. Because of your Lord, of your Father's God who helped you, because of the Almighty who blesses you, with blessings of the skies above, blessings of the deep spring below, blessings of the breast and womb, your Father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains. Then the bounty of the age-old hills, let all these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey. In the evening he divides the plunder." All of these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. 
Then he gave them these instructions. I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephraim the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre and Canaan, which Abram bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephraim the Hittite. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his son, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, My father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their flock and herd were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly. And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, The Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony, ceremony of mourning. That is why that palace near the Jordan is called Abel Mizram. So Jacob's son did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre, which Abram had bought along with the field as a burial place for Ephraim, the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrong wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins, the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of of the God of your father. When their message came to Joseph, when their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. I am the place of God. You intend to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. As he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children, also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, who were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up onto this land, to the land he promised an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Job 41. 
Can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you with gentle words? Will it make an agreement with you for you to take it as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of it like a bird or put it on a leash for the young woman in your house? Will traders barter for it? Will they divide it among the merchants? Can you fill its hide with harpoons or its head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on it, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing it is, subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand against it? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. I will not fail to speak of Leviathan's limbs, its strength and its graceful form. Who can strip off its outer coat? Who can penetrate its double coat of armor? Who dares open the doors of its mouth and ringed about with fearsome teeth? Its back has rows of shields tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no air can pass between. They are joined faster to one another fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. Its snorting throws out flashes of light. Its eyes are like the ray of dawn. Flames stream from its mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from its nostrils and from a boiling point over burning reeds. Its breath sets coals ablaze and flames dart from its mouth. Strength resides in its neck. Dismay goes before it. The folds of its flesh are tightly joined. They are firm and immovable. Its chest is hard as rock, hard as a lower millstone. When it rises up, the mighty are terrified. They retreat before its thrashing. The sword that reaches has no effect, nor does the spear or the dart or the javelin. Iron it treats like straw and bronze like rotten wood. Arrows do not make it flee. Slingshots are like chafe to it. A club seems to do but pierce a piece of straw. It laughs at the rattle of the lance. Its undersides are jagged potsherds, leaving a trail in the mud like a threshing sledge. It makes the depths churn like a boiling cauldron and stirs up the sea like a pot of ointment. It leaves a glistening wake behind it. One would think the deep had white hair. Nothing on earth is its equal, a creature without fear. It looks down on all that are haughty. It is king over all that are proud. Then Job replies to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes." After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter parts of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 
6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Gemina, the second Kizah, and the third Karan Hapash. Nowhere in all the land where they're found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died an old man and full of years. Psalm 17. Hear me, O Lord. My plea is just. Listen to my cry. Hear my prayer. It does not rise from deceitful lips. Let my my vindication come from you. May your eyes see what is right. Though you probe my heart, though you examine me at night and test me, you will find that I have planned no evil. My mouth has not transgressed. Though people tried to bribe me, I have kept myself from the ways of the violent through what your lips have commanded. My steps have held to your paths. My feet have not stumbled. I call on you, my God, for you will answer me. Turn your ear to me and hear my prayer. Show me the wonders of your great love. You who save by your right hand, those who take refuge in you from their foes. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who are out to destroy me, from my mortal enemies who surround me. They close up their callous hearts and their mouths speak of arrogance. They have tracked me down. They now surround me. My eyes alert to throw me to the ground. They are like a lion hungry for prey, like a fierce lion crouching in cover. Rise up, Lord, confront them, bring them down. With your sword, rescue me from the wicked. By your hand, save me from such people, Lord, from those of this world who reward is in this life. May what you have stored up for the wicked fill their bellies. May their children gorge themselves on it, and may there be leftovers for their little ones. As for me, I will be vindicated and will see your face. When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. This is the last story of Genesis. Notice how the last set of stories ends with reconciliation and redemption. Rabbi Foreman, according to Marty Solomon, makes parallels between Esther, a story we will read later, and Joseph, because like Esther came before the king to ask a favor, which was not customary or appropriate in that culture, Joseph likewise went before the pharaoh and asked to bury his father in his homeland, which was also not really customary or appropriate. But in an unbelievable act of generosity, just like in the story of the king to Esther, pharaoh not only saves, says yes, but sends the chariots and all all the processions of honor with Joseph and his family out into the desert, just like the king um, helps to protect Esther and all the Jewish Israelite people. Marty Solomon and Brett Billings describe a story in Jewish literature that is, isn't something we read directly out of this last part of the story, but it was really interesting to consider, and I wanted to share it with you. So in Genesis 50, verse 10, when Joseph and everyone reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, and they eulogized Jacob for seven days, and the Bible says the Canaanites saw this, from the closing paragraph of Rabbi Foreman's Genesis Parsha companion, the authors point to the oddness of the Hebrew name of the place, which we read as the threshing floor, and the Hebrew, the threshing floor adds, surrounded by thorn bushes, so a threshing floor surrounded by thorn bushes. The Jewish literature asks why and suggests a very cool redemptive story in the closing of Genesis. 
So the sages of the Talmud say that the place got its name from this remarkable story where all the kings of Canaan and all the princes of Ishmael assembled to ambush and attack the Israelites who had gathered at this spot to eulogize Jacob. Remember, Ishmael buried Abraham with Isaac, Jacob's father, in the cave of Machpelah, so he knew where they would be going. And the Canaanites lived in the area. (laughs) But then this story goes, as this story goes, they would be attacked. They would see something that halts them in their tracks. And it wasn't the size of the Egyptian burial procession. But according to the Jewish account, Joseph's crown was hanging on Jacob's casket. And this is what made the Canaanites and Ishmaelites put down their weapons and hung their own crown on Jacob's casket, surrounding it like a threshing floor surrounded by a fence of thorns. Hence the name of the place. Reflect on the why. This is so cool to think about in this um, story. So why would the Canaanites and Ishmaelites do this when Canaan is is a line that was cursed and Ishmaelites uh, came from a line that was banished? They're both considered dispossessed children that came to attack the favored and accepted children. But they are halted by Joseph, who also was considered a dispossessed child too. But when Joseph had a chance, he did not kill or exile the accepted and favored children. Joseph put his crown, his Egyptian prestige, which he already risked by stating he would bury his father in the homeland, on Jacob's casket. He had chosen to be restored to his family. Joseph took the venom out of the dispossessed children through his humility and yielding of his hurt and his power in favor of restoration and redemption. This story paints a picture of hope for what might be possible for the descendants of the dispossessed children of Israel, who are extensions, extended family of Israel, but they have been estranged, alienated, and dislocated, much like the story of Genesis 3. After all the pain, anger, and misunderstanding of the past, Joseph in this story still forgives, matures, and becomes an exemplar for how to make restoration and redemption more important than fame, wealth, hurt, or anger. It's not that these things didn't exist, but Joseph chose God's story, God's family, God centrally and first, even when they had hurt him in the past and he had access to power and wealth and and status now. Even when he had more profit, status, and comfort as an Egyptian, for me, I see, read, and experience so many people who have been hurt by the church or Christians, including myself. I get hurt and I get mad and then I hurt some more. But if I'm looking into this example here, I must put God's righteousness, his restoration and redemption over my hurt and anger. Because Joseph, who felt and was outcast when he had the chance to hurt others that were considered still like Christians or the church or the favored ones. He didn't. He yielded power, hurt all of it for restoration and redemption. Oh, how I see myself in the world in our personal, professional, and church lives needing this message now. If you are in the position of power or in the position of attack, what if you both yield? And what if we lean into God, who he is, the what The scriptures are revealing to us about what it means to love, to flourish, and be a blessing in his kingdom. Also notice in this last story, Jacob does not bless his first three sons, but bless Judah. His line is what leads to King David and ultimately Jesus. Yep, he continued, God continues to pick who he wants for what he wants, irregardless of sociocultural expectations. It wasn't the firstborn and it wasn't Joseph which is really interesting. And we also see 
you know, through this blessing, in a way, I think, what God thought of Simeon and Levi's incredible vengeance in response to the Dinah situation, their sister, also what, what Reuben did. So that's interesting. Also notice the answer to Job that God gives. It isn't logic. It isn't reasoning. It isn't like, oh, aha, I get it. But it's who God is. Such a hard answer. It's to trust in him, the goodness and immutable character already on display. Yes, this story and the last one talk about like the Leviathan and there was another beast of chaos. Um, And a lot of that I find just like perplexing. And I know that sometimes people will talk about the fact that God made, you know, they'll say, they'll phrase it, God made good and evil. I'm not convinced that's the best way to talk about it. Because God is goodness and created goodness, but he also created permissive will, which means you can pull away. And if you pull away, you pull into nothingness, which is darkness because it's totally outside of his light. Um, And he gave this permissive will as well to the Elohimian creatures he created. So he's the Elohim of Elohim. Um, But these creatures he created, um, he also gave them the right to be adversaries and to choose that dark path. And as we saw from Genesis 3, uh, that gets you cursed in their case, uh, which is, uh, I still like can't wrap my head around that. But he's talking about in this case, he's the only one that can conquer these creatures. Nothing we can do can conquer them. It's only through him that that's possible. And so we're a part of this much bigger, more complicated story. Um, and and he will he will be sovereign and he, but he also gives us permission because he loves he's a god that loves and loves to share a portion of power and authority so we're a part of this story and Father Mike Schmitz describes it as as I mentioned permissive will hurt will most definitely be a part of this experience when we and when others and the adversaries of God pull away in action and reaction. But God offers himself and the promise of this wounded victor in the story we know is coming to crush the head of the adversary. And in the blessing of Judah, we saw some more promises of what's to come and make a way for restoration and redemption. We know this wounded victor is Jesus, if you've already read ahead. And again, I just want to say again, I love Genesis. And I, like I said yesterday, I love what Father Mike Schmidt says. This Old Testament is hidden in the New Testament and the New Testament is revealed in the Old Testament, which we're reading now. Next up, Exodus. Pray for me, I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11 that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.